0: You don't have to turn there. Just listen to Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for an opportunity to worship. And we pray that you would bless us with understanding, that you would bless us with heart change, that you would bless us with mind renewal, that you would draw everyone here, all of us, close to Jesus through a true and living faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When... uh, when I, it was when I was a teenager, it was the first time I ever had someone actually truly challenge my way of thinking. My parents gave me a, a very long leash and kind of let me do whatever I wanted to do. Not a great way to parent, by the way. Uh, but they did love me. They were very encouraging and very affirming and but like this, no, no real challenge to my way of thinking. And we all have a various way that various ways in which we think. We have our own perspectives, and they are usually shared perspectives with other people, the way that we understand the world around us. And the first time I was ever challenged on the way that I saw the world, what really shook me was when, as a 17-year-old, I began to meet Christians. And these super annoying and uptight Christians, as I would think of them in the beginning, began telling me about God and the gospel began began telling me about Jesus. And it really began to challenge my some of my basic assumptions about myself and about the world. Now, one that they didn't have to challenge me on was that sin and evil were real and that people are sinful and evil in heart. I knew that I was sinful and evil. There was no question in my mind about that. I was wrong and bad. That I didn't struggle with. But Understanding who God is and the gospel and what is love and all, like ethics, like they, their perspective was so different and they were coming from such a place of love but also authority as they held on to the Bible, it really challenged me. And it was this, these concepts of God like, where I began to change the way that I saw things, like okay, so... The, the God of the Bible is a God worth believing in, right? That was my first step. Like, okay, but, but I, don't, I don't necessarily embrace it. And the, 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 the real challenge for me was not that God could forgive sinners like me. Uh, I believed that he could. I didn't believe that he would. There's a difference, right, between God being able to forgive somebody and willing, right? I'm able to do things. I don't always do those things, right? And when I would look at myself, I wouldn't forgive me. No way, I had done too much and had gone too far. So I was being challenged by these Christians in the way that I thought. And that was a part of the preaching of the gospel to me. It wasn't just addressing my heart. It was also addressing my mind. And this is really what I want us to see today. In this passage, we're going to see this, that the gospel changes our hearts and our worldviews. We tend to think about the gospel changes our our heart, you know, and it, it moves us from being a person who rejects God and hates God to a person who loves God and believes in Jesus, and that's true. But it doesn't just change your heart, it changes your mind, it changes specifically your worldview. So we are going to talk about what worldviews are today in just a little bit. But in order to see this, I want us to look at this passage, Acts chapter 14, so you can turn there. Acts chapter 14, we're going through verses 8 through 18. And we're going to see what the apostles did and experienced, and we're also going to note that what they did, at least on the principle level, we do, and what they experienced, we do experience, right? So Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 8, we see that the apostles offer the gospel and good works, and therefore we offer the gospel and good works. Look with me at verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand up on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. So, we, we, we're starting, again, with, with Paul and Barnabas, this missionary team. They're on their first missionary journey, and they're in a place called Lystra, which is about 20 miles pretty far away from a place called Iconium. They were just in Iconium, if you were with us last week. They were there preaching the gospel, doing their thing. God was doing great things. They were getting in trouble. They were getting persecution. They were experiencing some heat. And when it got so intense that their very lives were in danger, they booked it. They dipped out. They go, we got to get out of here, not because they were merely afraid, but because they wanted to continue to preach the gospel. So they went to Lystra, smaller town. Uh, there are some, uh, some, some Jewish people there, but there doesn't, doesn't look like there are any synagogues there uh, because that's their the typical MO, and we don't see that happening. We don't read about god fearing Greeks there. So they go to Lystra, and Paul is preaching. He's doing his thing. He's preaching the gospel. He's doing what he always does, but there's a man there, a man in need, Right? This man is described as being crippled from birth. He had never walked. All right? so this is not a guy with a foot problem. This is not a guy with a, with a bad leg. This is a guy who has never walked. He's never ran. He's never skipped. He's never jumped. He doesn't know the joy and the freedom that comes with mobility. He's been this way from birth, and it's a small town. was a small town, so everybody knows this guy. This guy is well-known. He's a guy that would ask for help, beg for alms. And he's there, and he's listening to Paul. Now, the idea here when it says that he listened to Paul speaking, the idea is that he was continually listening to Paul. Paul's out there preaching over and over again, and he's drawing crowds. And this guy, well, to be honest, he doesn't have a lot to do, right, except for ask for help and carry on with his life. He's listening to Paul over and over again, and he goes from being a man in need to a man of faith. He believes. You can see what it says. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, by the way, just notice this. Peter does this too. They'll be preaching the gospel, right? And they're good at making eye contact, apparently. So they're preaching the gospel. I don't. I kind of glaze over because I'm nervous about preaching. My eyes are like half-crossed, so I can't see most of you. Paul's like, he's making eye contact with people. And he sees that this guy that, whose legs don't work, he's dialed in, he's, look, he's focused, and Paul knows, somehow he knows what's going on in this man's heart. So Paul is looking at him intently, seeing that he had faith to be made well. All right, so what kind of faith does this man have? Now, the vast majority of scholars that I've read on this would say, well, it's a saving faith. It's a faith in Jesus. It's true faith. He is believing in the gospel that Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross to ransom sinners from sin, death, and hell, to give us new life and to reconcile us to God. He's believing this, and it's a faith that led to him being healed. But the translation itself is a little confusing for us, right? Because it doesn't say that he believed in Jesus. It doesn't say that he saw that he had faith in Christ. It doesn't even say in our English Bibles here, at least not in the ESV, that he had faith to be saved. It says that he had faith to be made well, which sounds like faith to be healed. The problem with this, and I don't usually do this to you, is that uh, because I want you to be able to read and trust your English Bibles, uh, they're very good. The Greek actually helps us here to know what's actually going on, right? Um, there's one word that's being translated be made well. He had faith to be made well. And it's the Greek word sozo, which means to save. That's what it means. He had faith to be saved. That's what it actually says, faith to be saved. Now, it can be translated in a variety of ways, and it can be translated, oh, to be saved, to be, to be made whole, to be made well. It can work that way, but this is the very word that is oftentimes used to indicate the salvation, like the faith that saves. For example, I'll just give you two examples real quick. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Sozo right? That's the word. Same word here, to be made well. It's speaking not of a physical healing, it's speaking of a spiritual healing. Or Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So and so. Okay, so that's what we're seeing here. He had faith to be saved. He had a saving faith, a saving interest in Jesus, and yes, that saving faith is a part of what led to him being healed miraculously by God through the ministry of Paul. He believed the gospel and was healed. So he's a man in need. He becomes a man of faith, and then he becomes a man who's made physically whole right and we see it in verse 10 what happens in verse 10 paul says in a loud voice stand upright on your feet and he sprang up and began walking he sprang up he jumped up he he believed i mean he so believed in the gospel that when paul the preacher of the gospel said stand up he didn't hesitate He knew as as real as God is, as real as Jesus is, that command for me to stand up is true. Homeboy springs up, feet up in the air. He is up and ready to walk. And I like to imagine that he had to be a little unsteady. I just like the idea of this guy kind of tripping over himself, figuring out walking, right? I mean, he's been watching it all of his life, but he hasn't been doing it at all. So what a joyful, stumbling, confusing mess. Sort of like when you're a new Christian, right? When you're a new Christian, you have real faith, saving faith. You trust the Bible, but you don't know what the the heck you're doing, right? We make a lot of mistakes, we make a lot of messes, we goof up, we screw up, we trip and we fall, and God keeps sending us back up like, go, 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 you've got this because I've got you. I love the picture. So this man is healed, a genuine miracle, a true miracle, an instantaneous true healing of legs that have never worked. This is not the modern kind of fanciful, you know, really subjective healing that we see in most like healing ministries today. We've talked about this. God does still do miraculous things, and he does still miraculously heal. But we don't see this gift of healing like we see in uh, the book of Acts. We don't see this gift where a man like Paul will tell somebody whose legs have never worked, rise and walk and go on your way. We don't see that today because it's associated with the apostolic era and the establishment of God's word. So we see a man in need, a man of faith, a man who becomes made whole. And what we're seeing here is how the apostles and how we are supposed to offer the gospel and good works. We offer both. Right? We offer both the gospel and good works because we are supposed to have the heart of God, which is the heart of compassion for those in need. Right? When we're preaching the gospel, we're not supposed to be looking at people going, you dummies. You dummies. I can't believe you're so dumb. You went down that particular path, and now you're screwing up your life, and you're making all these wrong decisions, and look at how gross you are. All right, If you want to get out of it, you believe in Jesus. like That's not what we do. Well, that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to look at sinners and, in a sense, see ourselves. We're supposed to see people in need, people who are hurting. Yes, people who have made terrible decisions, and yes, sometimes very morally bankrupt people. I was certainly one. We see that, and we're supposed to have compassion and therefore share the gospel with them. Same for those people who are in need. We don't look at them and go, bad choices, bad decisions. Why didn't you try harder? Why didn't you do better? We want to help. We do it because Jesus did it. And while we do not have the ability to supernaturally heal people at will, we do offer kindness and help. We help when we can. We're supposed to be people that offer both the gospel and good works. Both are important, but only one saves. Make no mistake about it. One is more important than the other, right? One is our fundamental responsibility as the church, as Christians, to preach the good news. That's what we are called to do first and foremost. But we don't do that divorced from good works. We're supposed to offer words of grace alongside works of grace. The works will save no one, will cleanse no one of their sin, will not change their hearts. But the words of grace, the gospel is what does change people's hearts, We offer both because it's coming from a place of love and compassion, following the example of Christ. So we offer the gospel and good works, right, following the example of the apostles. And when we do this, we will sometimes, like the apostles, be completely misunderstood. They are completely misunderstood, and they get what I like to call bad praise, right? Not bad press, bad praise. Look at verses 11 through 13 because things go nuts, it says, and the crowd saw what Paul had done, and they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. This is bananas. The apostles are preaching the gospel, calling people to repent of their sins and to believe in Christ. And we've been going through the book of Acts, so we know the kinds of things that Paul says, right? Sometimes he'll quote from the Old Testament and draw these lines. Sometimes he'll, he'll draw analogies to people's experience or to their pagan ideologies. And so he's been preaching the gospel, and when they see the power, this miraculous demonstration of divine power heal a man that they all know, they all know the guy that doesn't walk. he's a small town. When they see him leap up and start walking, their response is a grave misinterpretation. They have to make sense of this, right? I mean, how do they make sense of what they're? They're seeing something they've never seen before. They're hearing this gospel, they're seeing these two guys go at it and preach, and now they're seeing this demonstration. So how do they make sense of this? Well, they have to interpret what they're seeing through their worldview. These these are people who are, they're they're pagans. I don't use that word in a negative sense, like, oh, they're pagans. I'm not not using it as as, as a judgment. I'm using it historically, technically. They were technically pagans. They were polytheists, right? Uh, The Greek and Roman gods were pagan, considered pagan religions. So they worshipped Zeus, and specifically here, they worshipped Zeus and Hermes. Zeus was the father, lord of the sky, and Hermes was his son. There's a father and son team. And there was actually a, a tradition in Greek mythology where, where they, Zeus and Hermes had visited the area. Now, we don't have time to get into the story because it's, it's not important, but these were people who believed. These were their gods. Now, how do they make sense of this. Well, they begin to look at these two doing signs and wonders and preaching with authority and all of the people coming together. And the best thing that they can come up with is it's Zeus and Hermes. And by the way, if you're like, how come Paul's not Zeus? Because Paul's the main dude. And Zeus seems like he's the main guy. Why is Paul getting like, oh, Hermes? It's because Hermes was the talker. Hermes was the interpreter. Zeus was the one that stood back more, and so they're looking at Paul's the talker. Barnabas, he's more like Zeus. So again, they're just trying to make sense of this, and they're going, okay, they've appeared. They've come down in the flesh again, right? They're here to visit with us in some way. Trying to make sense of it. It's the best that they can do because their worldview is pagan. It's the only way that they know how to interpret what they're seeing and this is what happens when we wind up preaching the gospel. It becomes not just a sharing of ideas; it becomes a challenge between worldviews. What is a worldview? So we'll keep this. We'll keep this. Uh, I think we'll try. I'll try to keep this really simple, right? A, a, and a worldview is not a Christian thing, right? A, a worldview. Any college gives classes on worldview. There's. There's attitudinal worldviews. There's philosophical and religious worldviews. There's large, you know, metanarrative categorical worldviews. Most simply, your worldview is the set of foundational beliefs that guide or govern your perception of reality. It guides your thinking and your knowing and your doing. It is a philosophy of sorts, and everybody has one. Everybody at every age has a developing worldview. Those set of foundational beliefs that help us to make sense of the world that we're living in, right? And so a lot of times you'll hear uh, philosophers talk about metaphysics and epistemology and ethics and politics, and they'll say, like, well, this is what is really being formulated in our worldview. But to be a little bit more plain about it, right, the foundational questions that are being answered, the foundational beliefs that make up our worldview are questions like, is it possible to actually know anything, can we really know anything? Do I really exist? How do you know that? It's questions like, where did we come from? Your foundational answer to like a question like that, what is a human being? Are we different from other mammals? What is a human being? And what's wrong with humanity? Because something is definitely wrong, or maybe there isn't. How you answer that is a part of your worldview, right? It begins to frame how you're interacting with, interpreting, and experiencing the the whole created order. Is there a God? And who is he? Has he spoken? Has he acted? Is he silent? How do we know what's right and wrong? How do you ultimately determine? Because the vast majority of people that I encounter in the secular world would say, oh, how do I know what's right? I just know. I just kind of know. Well, I'm like, okay, good, okay, so how do you know? Like, what is it? And they'll say, like, well, it's just what's right for me is right for me and not, might not be right for you. And it goes on from there, like, well, in some societies, societies get to collectively determine what's right and what's wrong, and other societies have disagreements, and it, it, it's not that there is right and wrong, it's like we choose what's right and wrong for us or for our societies. Is that, I mean, is it subjective, or is there objective? Is there truth? Is it objective? Like, is it real? Is anything Real. What is our purpose? Do we have a purpose outside of ourselves? You you get the idea. Your worldview is how you understand and make choices in the world in which you live. It It is like a lens that allows you to see. And it either is going to be a good prescription or a bad prescription. You guys know... Well, Some of you know, I broke my glasses, I sat on them, and now I I don't have my glasses, so I can't see real well. Uh, I have to wear these readers that barely fit on my pumpkin head, and uh, if I don't have them on, everything's kind of blurry. In fact, y'all look better like this. You're like, I can't see your imperfections, your boogers. I can't see any of the gross stuff because you all just look kind of good. I can't tell, like, oh, uh, uh, you know, how old you are. Like, that's a little, some, I see gray, but, you know, sometimes that's in style. Like, I, it's hard to know. I can't see wrinkles. And so, like, age and what's going on, facial expressions, I can't see that real well. And then I put these on, and it's like, oh, wow, yep, some of you look better with them off. So, it, but the point is, is that your, your worldview is like a lens. And if the prescription is right, you can then see see. Oh, I can see reality. If the prescription is wrong, you're not going to see very well. Fundamental. Everybody has a worldview. How do you develop it? A lot goes into that, right? And there's more than just one thing that goes into, into any worldview. But for the Christian, the Christian worldview is foundationally biblical, if we don't have a biblically grounded and governed worldview, we cannot properly understand reality. Now, you can understand lots of reality without a biblical worldview. You can understand God's common grace and people can figure things out. But for the, a full perspective on the world that we have, Scripture is absolutely fundamental. And for us, we hold on tight. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about worldviews, right? So we have this clash of worldviews. You've got the apostles and these pagans coming together, and even though the apostles are being as clear and as precise as they can be, the pagans are like, Zeus, this is amazing, because it's all that they know, and they're doing their best to understand. They're not trying to be mean. And so what happens is they essentially give, uh, give the apostles sort of a... Bad praise, it's like a bad reputation. Here's the thing, Christians sometimes get a bad reputation because uh, we're awful, right? Sometimes churches have bad reputations because they're terrible and they should be shut down. Sometimes pastors have a bad reputation because they should be defrocked and never allowed to minister again. And sometimes we, just in general, get a bad rep because we're being jerks. Don't think you're being persecuted for your faith just because you have hostility from someone. Sometimes it's because you're annoying, now, sometimes it's because, yeah, you're sharing the gospel and people don't want to hear it, and so they come after you. That there is a difference. So sometimes, right, sometimes we are, we get a bad reputation and it's, it happens for a variety of reasons, but let's just say you've earned it. Like, sometimes you've earned the bad reputation because you've been a jerk. Sometimes you get a bad reputation because people hate what you're saying, right? And so they'll slander you. So sometimes it's the truth. You, have a, you should have a bad rep. Sometimes it's untrue. And sometimes, like here, they get a bad rep in a sense. They don't want to be called Zeus and Hermes. They don't want to be associated with Greek mythology. But they're getting a bad rep, and it's not malicious. They're just misunderstanding, right? And so th- what do they do? How, what is their response, right? And so there's, we, we offer the gospel in good works. We are going to be misunderstood at times. So what we do is we offer clarity and a call. Clarity and a call. That's what the apostles do here in verses 14 through 18. It says, but when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, first of all, the scholars agree, when they start speaking Lyconium, like that's them freaking out. These people are speaking like they're like going back to their, their home language like this is this is like Zeus and Hermes. And the apostles have been like we don't know what they're saying but they're talk, they're pointing at us and they're saying Zeus and Hermes. So something's going on. They finally figure out what's going on, right? And they're not happy with this. They don't want to have this kind of association. They don't want the, first of all they don't want praise for themselves and second of all this is the wrong religion altogether. So they what do they do? They rush into the crowd. They go, they they leave. Let's just say they're on a, on a raised elevation of some sense so they, could, so they could speak to the people. They hear this, they go straight into the mix. Tons and tons of people so they can begin to explain to them earnestly, it is not as you are suggesting. So here's what they say Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. That you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. This is a summary of what they said. This, obviously, they, they, there's a lot of talk going on here, but this is a summary. So they, they, this is the summary, and what's the response in verse 18? Even with these words, they could scarcely restrain the people from offering them sacrifice. So what do they do? The apostles, they rush in, clash of worldviews, right? So what they, they rush in and they clarify, They're like, no, 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 you're misunderstanding. The first thing they want to make plain is, we are like you. And what does that mean? Well, it means, well, listen, <laughs> we, it means not only, hey, we're just human, but imagine what their preaching and their teaching has been. No, no, we are just like you. We are people. We are men made in God's image, but sinful, corrupt, and in need of God's mercy. We're just like you. We're the same. By the way, this is why we should be so earnest in sharing the gospel, because when we look at lost people, we should see a reflection of who we were and who we are to some degree. Needy sinners. Needy sinners. So they say, no, 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 we're, we're like you. We share the same nature. We need God's grace. We are not God's at all. The second thing they say is like you, and this is where they go from clarification to confrontation. This is, this is the painful part of confronting worldviews. They say, you need to leave all this stuff behind. You need to stop believing this stuff. You need to turn from these vain things. What what Paul is telling them is like listen, your whole belief system is ultimately useless. That's what he's saying. Now he's not being mean. He's being earnest. He cares. He's telling them listen, you 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 you've you've, you've embraced a system of belief that is mere mythology. It's cool. <laughs> it's worth reading, but it's not worth believing. So what you need to do is turn away from this mythology, turn away from these stories and believing them as true, and turn towards the true God. He says the living God. There is a God who actually did make all things. So he appeals to God as creator. He goes, this is the one I want you to believe in, the one who actually made all things, who created all, fills all, rules all, sustains all. We want you to believe in him. That's the appeal. Turn to this God who gave you freedom, right? I mean, listen, listen to how Paul lays it out. Even he says, "Listen, uh, I want you to turn to the living God." In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. He's given you the freedom to choose to do what you want, and you've done that, and you've chosen poorly. And the reality is, we all do. And in spite of that, what do you experience? God's common grace, his blessings. He's given you rain, he's given you food, he's given you things that are delicious and delightful in your life so that you would give thanks and praise to him but you haven't done it. Instead, you've been looking to and relying on false gods. This is the God who blessed you. So in all, what does he say? Like, listen, we're just like you. Leave these vain things. Turn to the true and living God. He mentions good news, which is an indication that they've gone through the gospel again. So in all of this, they are not just preaching a gospel divorced from a broader understanding of reality. They are addressing the worldview of these men and women in this particular city. And this is important because, practically speaking, a person's worldview is their world. It is everything. Nothing makes sense apart from their worldview. And they've probably been developing it and building it or at least reinforcing it for years and years, which means when you are offering a competing worldview, a purer worldview, a more accurate worldview that is in conflict with another worldview, what you are doing is you are beginning to deconstruct their way of thinking, being, and doing. And that is something we should take seriously and be kind in. I read uh, Francis Schaefer when I was a, a young Christian, and uh, I read a lot of Francis Schaefer. And he's not right on, on everything, but he was super challenging, super informative. And, and he was the first person I read that really made this point. Like when, when you are helping to deconstruct someone's worldview as you preach the gospel to them and try to make disciples, be gentle because you're tearing down their world. It's scary. It's frightening. Now, you are rebuilding it as well, but you don't want to just go in as a wrecking ball and start kicking things over. Be strategic. Be kind. Be truthful. And keep the word in front of them as God rebuilds. So we offer clarity and a call, right? Clarify the mistakes and misunderstandings. We offer a call to response that is faith. So just two things to encourage you as we as we wrap it up. Number 1, when we are sharing the gospel, when you share the gospel, and I pray that we are more evangelistic this year than any year in our 15-16 years of existence as a church, when you evangelize and share the gospel, realize you are not just challenging hearts, you are challenging minds. You are challenging the way and calling people to think differently. Right? You are challenging worldviews, which means please be patient. Be biblical, be patient. Be kind, okay? So that's number one. Number two, related to that, because there is a a call to be patient in the midst of this challenge of changing people's minds, um, take note that it usually takes multiple hearings of the gospel before anyone is converted. Think about, if you can remember when you became a Christian, think about that, right? Maybe you know the day, maybe you know the general season. Think about when you became a Christian, Was that the first time you ever heard the gospel? Was that day the first day you ever heard the gospel? I bet not. For the vast majority of people, you heard it a long time before, and you heard it again and again. The reality is is most of us aren't converted on the first hearing of the gospel because God takes us through what the Puritans called, by the way, a season of preparation. You hear the gospel, and he begins to go to work on your soul. God could do it in an instant, right? And ultimately, we are born again in a moment. But he takes this time, right, to Season us, to prepare us. And much of that is the tweaking of our worldview. So it takes multiple hearings of the gospel. So please be patient and just know that even as we believe the gospel as Christians and follow Jesus, our worldview needs to get better. Your worldview needs to get better. You don't have it all figured out. Is anyone's faith here? Full and complete, lacking in nothing. want anyone hear faith perfect? No? Oh, liar. <laughs> no, but I know what you're saying, right? Because if faith is genuine, like if faith is real, you're like, my faith is real. It's legit. I, I can, I'm grateful for this gift. And that's true. But nobody's faith is actually perfect. It needs to grow. It needs to mature. It can shrink back and become weak and can become strong. Our worldview as well has to grow and strengthen. So in other words... Keep a tight grip on God's word because it is the means of grace that God has given us to change both our hearts and our minds. And if you are here and you are not yet a believer in Jesus, and all of this sounds like a whole bunch, I just want to encourage you to consider the worldview-shattering reality that the holy God who created all of us loves us even though we are sinners, and he sent his son to die for our sins, that those who believe in him can be forgiven, will be forgiven and reconciled to God. Their hearts are changed, our minds are changed, and this allows us to walk not only with true purpose, but allows us to walk in this world actually understanding what this place is and what our place is in it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you today in spirit and in truth Lord, and I know it's, it's, it's different and challenging when, um, you know, we're all together and the kids don't have their own class, but, Lord, how, how great and exciting it is for us to all have a new shared experience on a particular Sunday. I'm grateful, Lord, that um, you accept our worship, not because it's perfect, though it is. The music, Lord, is pretty awesome. Uh, it's not, it's, you don't accept it because it's perfect, Lord. You accept it because it is made perfect by Jesus. You accept our worship because it stems from faith, which is real, even if imperfect, We pray, God, that you would strengthen us in our love for you, that you would renew our minds, that we would be transformed for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.